Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. This is episode 37. You're with Skander and Jamie. Yeah, 37 hello, episodes. Hello, hello. <laughs> we got there. Uh, technically, actually 47 with the old LUXR podcast, but uh, we're nearing 50 now. Yeah, just say 47, yeah. <laughs> 47. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we were supposed to have this episode uh, live stream, but we're going to take a bit more time, I think, to get back into the technical aspects of things. So do bear with us, but we'll be back on Twitch quite soon. Yeah. Um, our, our one our one viewer, don't worry. We'll, we'll yeah. come back to our stream, don't worry. <laughs> Please do. We love having that one question <laughs> during the stream. It makes our day each time. Um, but yeah, we've uh, we've actually received a couple of really nice messages from people who are wondering where the podcast went. Um, we did want to mention mm. very quickly that yeah, it in well mainly my personal life, it's been a little bit hectic the past couple months. So that's hence the slowness of the podcast. Uh, but hopefully, we're kind of back on track now, and we'll be putting out episodes uh, much more frequently. And I feel like we've said this before. I am getting a bit of deja vu. Of like the intentions there, it's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, like just other times where we've come back from. For example, when I was my stint in, in Costa Rica or something, or when you were doing your masters, and, and yeah, each time we're well, like, we're back to it now, yeah, for like a month. <laughs> life's a busy thing, but we we're, yeah. we always want to come back, so that's the that's the main thing. Exactly, and as the viewing figures suggest, people are come back with us, so it's it's great to see that there's interest. And if you ever want to suggest a topic, suggest a researcher we should talk to, please do so and also know that I am working very hard on the uh, friend, uh, Flemish far-right narrative series. Uh, it, the third episode will be out soon, hopefully. But enough of this. Today, we have Rahul Ranjan, who is a postdoc research fellow in the Department of International Studies at Oslo Met uh, University in Norway. So actually, neighboring mine. Um, and you're also working for the Riverine Rights Project, if I understood correctly. And um, yeah, you're joining us uh, from a little village uh, right now, so not not Oslo, but uh, we're super happy to have you here. I hope the internet connection welcome, is will will be uh, stable and good. But yeah, welcome to the show. No, I'm very pleased. Thank you so much for the invitation, and I really look forward to the conversation today. Thank you for coming. Us too. Us too. Yeah, it's, it yeah. seems like some really interesting stuff. Not re not really sort of come across a lot of the ideas here before, which is like I'm, so I'm looking forward to sort of yeah seeing what they mean. I there's, guess, yeah. there's always a lot of like um, very niche ideas and concepts, which uh, I think would be somewhat difficult, but definitely not impossible to to explain to to kind of general population. And that's kind of you know what this uh, podcast is in mm. part for is also trying to explain these much more academic concepts so we can get out of the uh, the metaphorical ivory tower mm -hmm. of, of academic language. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, let's maybe start with uh, just kind of your background, um, where you are from, how you got into these kinds of topics, and I guess what interests you in general. Right. Um, so I did my a large part of education in India in, in University of Delhi and JNU. Um, in, in politics and then I moved to England for my PhD. Um, I have always been very interested in questions of inequality, uh, social justice, uh, uh, race, gender, um, 
and while i was writing my mphil um, which is a research degree in india um and not masters at the same time so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful degree which is no more in place but it allows you to do intensive research and during that period i did my research on a policy on land um and i wanted to look at how a certain kind of policy impact certain targeted group more more directly than other and especially if this certain community belongs to marginalized group they have lesser political mobilization um for reasons obvious of, of not having um political representation within parties and, and etc that got me interested in in writing a phd which i did on um, an anti colonial figure called birsa munda and uh, so he he fought against against the british empire but also against uh, existing landlords who were uh, high caste hindus uh, and in india there's a caste system in place uh, that's extremely repressive in nature and is um, is granted authority uh, from various social and religious uh, uh, forum so i got interested in looking at this one figure who comes from an adivasi community which is also indigenous people and i ended up writing my dissertation on how his memory is mobilized um in contemporary forms movements that are associated with um advocating rights for uh, land environment in general mm-hmm. so yeah i ended up writing a political ethnography of <laughs> memory and and of indigenous uh, people's politics in east india um and then i moved to stop Mhm. Yeah. How did you get into uh how did you find Norway as a <laughs> a place to move to because I I guess we've had the you know that in terms of we've both moved uh from outside of Norway into Norway and it's it's a an experience I found so <laughs> I'm just wondering how yours was. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been very interesting uh for many reasons one is um I defended at a time when in fact a day when in fact the day when the UK lockdown started so I actually embarked into pretty pretty devastated job market um and I didn't know where to go what to do but I had a wonderful comment for my PhD and and as with any PhD student you just take up on what comes on your way because the job market was so bad and intense and it remains so even after 2 years but this project sort of so i work on for a project called riverine rights which is funded by the research council of norway and in just just to sort of map out what this project is about it's about rights of rivers in three different countries including india new zealand and colombia um and the project responds to this new trend within international and environmental law which uh advocates for rights of nature in general um so i work on indian case study where i look at rivers and their rights so in my phd in one of the last chapters i looked at how adivasis the indigenous people use several kinds of um, memorial methods to advocate for uh, rights of the forest and and that gave me some bit of reading exposure to what what it means to be talking about environment beyond um 
policy directives you know so how do we translate let's say cosmology into 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 worldview how do we understand if and if there is a possibility at all for us as an outsider to understand and and i think that that sort of granted me a certain degree of uh, knowledge about um thinking about uh, climate change and reverse and environment in general so i ended up mm-hmm. applying to many postdocs uh, and i applied to this as well and and i just happened to have was very fortunate to was granted uh, yeah this funding and then i quickly moved to norway so it's been interesting i mean norway as you know is a very very insular country in one way <laughs> like it, it's not london where i live that's a nice way to put it <laughs> haven't heard that word used before that's good way I'll, i'll i'll steal that for for myself <laughs> yeah no you're yeah. you're completely right it's uh yeah. i think you you do get a bit of a sense of that norway maybe doesn't want people that much <laughs> um through the bureaucracy and, and all that but, yeah. and i moved from london so and before that i was in delhi for seven years and mm. so i've always lived uh, not always but at least for the longer part of my adult life i've lived in big cities where you had diversity of uh, voices and community to talk mm. to and to be able to get lost and, and not not feel very uh, spotted <laughs> yeah so i think in that sense uh, norway has been quite uh, yeah it has its own uh, ways of receiving uh, migrants foreign mm-hmm. migrants mm-hmm. so yeah so maybe we can start then with this because uh, there's a few papers of yours that we would like to talk about but uh, the riverine rights uh, one mm-hmm. i guess is one of the ones that definitely struck me personally i think as uh, as something like really interesting that we could talk about um i'm just trying to find the the name of the article itself uh, which was where ordinary laws fall short riverine rights and constitutionalism uh so that's uh, with a group of other researchers as well um for griffith law review so that was in 2021 yeah last year yeah and so i guess as i understood it uh again from a very like outsider kind of point of view was that um there is this concept of giving rivers rights and subjectivity right and that you guys studied this in in three different uh countries but what i was really curious about is um i guess if you can maybe explain for us this idea like the, this kind of original concept of subjectivity of mm. non-humans because i think that's something that probably a lot of our listeners but also ourselves are slightly unfamiliar with in the west uh from this kind of european context um it kind of sounds i guess like um there's a kind of logical impossibility in our like european mindset of of giving subjectivity to non-humans you know yeah thanks for the question it's it's something that we continue to ask ourselves in this project and and we're trying to explore that but i think this article was written by four members of my team including elizabeth macpherson she's written quite a lot on rights to river uh, in new zealand from the perspective of law but this article was written in order to argue that uh, for the longest time um, we've used um, different methods to speak of natural environment in general 
Um, so we we wanted to see if there is a trend that sort of um, move away from existing framework in defending the rights of the environment in general. And in in this article, we basically took up all three case studies. Um, and I'm a political anthropologist, and the other people involved in this article were lawyers. So it was quite an interesting uh, inter intellectual conversation between four of us writing, trying to write this together. And we found out that in each case study, so just to make a, just to make clear that each case study, New Zealand, Colombia, and India, are very different from each other. Not just because they are different geographies, and therefore the defining characteristic of landscape is extremely, extremely different. Uh, but in case of India, the rights to river had come from a judgment from Uttarakhand High Court, which is one of the uh, states in India. So India, India has a federal government system where you have several state comes together with it, along with the union government. So the judgment came from a state government, which is a state that also has um, Himalayas from where you have these two big rivers that comes out, Ganga and Yamuna. So it was not, it was not an act uh, bill that was passed in parliament to become an act, which means it did not have the support of legislative members from the parliament. Whereas in the New Zealand case, you've had, uh, uh, you know, the act becoming an act by being held through discussions over many discussions in the, in the parliament and then becoming, um, an act mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it's a major major difference because then the possibility of discussion in case of the court judgment is far less than the one in, in the case of New Zealand but there are also differences in terms of uh, and you, you know geography here is a very big determinant in deciding to what extent can we argue for rights to river so rights to river I mean non-human discussion is basically a discussion in which we're trying to admit that we are in an age where climate crisis is emergent and we're witnessing it. And unless the law does not stretch its boundary to address some of those entities within our life world, within our larger ecology that cannot speak for itself, then we will reach a point of complete um, annihilation of the environment, right? Mm -hmm. So in order to speak for... Uh, something that's not human, so non-human in this case, river, uh, law has actively uh, forged participation with civil society and, and indigenous groups. So in case of New Zealand, you've had a very sustainable form of movement that ran for over 100 years, uh, led by Maori tribes who are the indigenous people in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Whereas in India, it's a top-bottom approach, which is why... Right. It has several internal flaws to which we can come later. But just to sort of say that by being non-human, it basically means we are admitting to the fact that we are leaving massive human footprints on other uh, living entity in the environment. And, and river happens to be one of them. Mm -hmm. Within law, it's not possible so far to do it. So you can't use, because law does not recognize non-human as natural entity. So non-humans are not natural person so how do you then advocate for rights of river and in this case the court said let's use the idea of legal personhood where uh, we basically uh, and it's an idea that's been in place for you know many years so we've we've had the legal personhood given granted to corporations corporations becoming you know legal persons and mm. and then they're being advocated on behalf you know 
by someone who is elected as a committee member. It's a similar framework that was used for rights to river to advocate for what cannot speak for itself. Now you can ask question on how do you know what river has to speak, and that's what bring makes it more interesting. That how do we know what river is trying to argue for, and to what mm -hmm. extent can that argument be taken to or or be stretched about, or or if there are existing modes of speaking available in non-legal forms, and and what happens to them. So that's a separate discussion, but just just as a preliminary definition purpose. Non-human is basically a point uh, in time within the climate crisis where you're trying to argue for protection of the environment in general. So you recognize non-humans as as sort of uh, legal person in order to safeguard their rights. Hmm. That's that's really really interesting, and like I can definitely see the value with for recognizing a river as 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 something that can possess rights. What what I what I'm sort of really interested in is is this sort of i there's kind of two ways i can see this that that is motivating uh this this decision to grant rights to a river on the one is it it, it could be a genuine recognition of the river as something that maybe ha has interests or ha has some sort of individuality or, or desert of these rights so it's it's a it's an actual care for the river or on the other hand this uh cons considering the river as a as a holder of rights as something that can hold rights is sort of more of a, a useful analogy it's it and that ultimately is motivated by human interests but it so you know it's it's an analogy that's that's quite responsible and considerate because ultimately it's it's supposed to be sort of helping humans and i guess in a more fair way um do, do, do you think that's like a fair distinction? And if, if so, would you, you, do you think either one, one is more accurate than the other for this particular instance? Yeah, I mean, no, you're right. I mean, the recognition of rights to river also is contingent on recognizing rights of human at first, right? So, I mean, depletion of glacier is not going to only impact uh, river itself, but our, our very existence as human being is contingent on the flow and the discharge that comes out of the glacier. So, for instance, if the glacier depletes, which means the life form will deplete, uh, it will vanish. So, I mean, even when we argue for rights of river, it is already admitted that a certain degree of interest very much lay within human interest, right? So, I uh, personally, and there's a big discussion, ongoing discussion on whether or not uh, rights to river is in contravention or has some sort of um, uh, you know battle with human rights um, mm -hmm. and it's a valid question whether to what extent can we grant rights to uh, river or in, in 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 rights to nature in general because uh, because there are overlapping interests right so and it becomes more and more complicated if you if you go on to look at the wealth of experiences and knowledge that indigenous people hold in living their lives uh, in tandem with the nature and environment, right? Without being in confrontation. And in that sense, then giving, privileging nature would mean that a certain form of alienation would follow the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to begin to advocate that a certain group cannot access this many forests or that many water. Um, mm -hmm. and, and these are serious questions that, uh, um, that we are all asking. So in this article that we wrote when ordinary law falls we we've we've set it 
I think it's all. I think it's in the first paragraph, and I think second, third sentence that where we say that it's an incipient framework, but transformative in nature. So we, it's even while we're talking about rights of nature, it is something that's also developing as we go on. But it doesn't take away the political urgency with which this concept has come about. This has definitely come about at a time when we are seeing massive. Uh, disappearance you know extinction of species on on earth and and massive uh, massive level of uh, depletion of water groundwater or, or the glaciers so so yeah i mean yeah i mean so i understand that your question makes sense especially when when you see it in reference to or in yeah in generally in reference to human rights it becomes very complicated um and which one would you like to privilege or, you know one mm. or other Mm. Yeah, I guess if if one um, this this reminds me a lot of uh, the kind of debates around uh, the Amazon forest being uh, an entity. I mean, I guess there's a lot. Mm. You know, you must have seen this with your research on on Colombia uh, as one of the three parts. But yeah, the I guess I've seen a lot of this kind of um, legal recognition talk in South America, and was it? It wasn't Colombia, was it, that did end up recognizing the rights of nature as a person, was it? It, it did with rivers, Atrato River, which is a river in okay. Colombia, which is also I, part of the study. Okay, I think for some reason, I, 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 I don't know why, but I'm thinking potentially of Bolivia or Ecuador. I'm not, I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah, Bolivia did, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that these ideas often come from indigenous cosmologies as you said or, or uh, i guess yeah how to translate cosmology i guess uh, i world views of of or or experiences of indigenous groups um and i i think the this is something that we've talked about on the podcast a little bit is there is a lot of uh want from academia i think more and more to dive into this indigenous um goldmine really of ideas because that's what it is it's it's uh it's full of really interesting ideas and you know and we've seen uh the whole works of post-development for example with Arturo Escobar and another and Illich and other uh really like fantastic scholars kind of take into their own hands to try and, and translate these ideas into something that the west uh, western audiences can understand and use um I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the idea of um, potentially, how do I put this, like not stealing these ideas, but the extractive uh, kind of slightly colonial aspect of uh, Western scholars kind of taking these ideas from indigenous uh, groups, such as the rights of, of nature as being um, inherently like existing as a as a, an entity i don't know there, there's a lot of talks i've seen recently about about this idea of, of yeah a, a kind of idea grabbing of of uh indigenous um concepts and how it can sometimes be co-opted into a more uh yeah capitalist kind of worldview uh and really in the end just killed off by that co-opt uh, co-opting <laughs> So I was wondering if you've if you've seen that if you've maybe uh, experienced that in your research. 
yeah i mean i'm i'm trying to learn this as much as i do the work uh, i'd say and i think the discussion is more uh, layered when it comes to the case of new zealand because uh, for my case study in india it's a clear case of um, of a court deciding something on behalf of millions of people um so the community participation is absolutely absent um, right so what we got in india is is very sustainable body of social movement uh, and people advocating fighting for rights of nature but in different vernacular so the language of rights to nature is is something that's very new but uh, but but in itself it's not a new idea uh, because there are pre existing movements and in india as a country that has had a rule of colonial empire for over 300 years there've been sustainable movement that have elements of anti colonial strains of thoughts um that sort of combine itself with pressing concerns of environmental and, and climate change uh, so for instance during my phd uh, which was in an area that's uh, partly conflict ridden it's it's in the eastern part of india called jharkhand uh, which has a highest one of the highest uh, maoist insurgency uh, which means the high left wing uh, militant group um, but also at the same time one of the highest concentration of indigenous people and at the same time uh, one of the highest concentration of uh, resources and uh, okay. no, no and it doesn't surprise anyone because uh there's a reason why the the politics is going up in in certain area and, and not in other um but i mean the way people have been navigating questions of let's say um rights of nature not in the language in itself but rights of let's say forest um from as early as mid 19th century um so the figure that i looked at was bilsamunda who fought against um the high caste hindus and british officials um he had a very clear call clarin call which is called abwa desum abwa raj which means uh, my village my rule but in formulating that sentence uh, he carried with himself a lot of political consciousness about what he wanted uh, for his people in his uh, uh, space uh, in which there's been constant uh, uh, you know extraction by outsiders so a lot of movement that then you go back in archive and you see uh, back in time that what were these people protesting against and you realize that they were constantly trying to argue for something more than human in a way that the argument about defending uh, environment was not in itself outside of their life world it was very much part right. of it uh, so forest river rivulet spring land uh, primarily land co-constituted the idea of uh, you know living as an entity you know so in my forthcoming book which is my phd research i talk a lot about how you know these kind of modern construct of fragmented thoughts mm-hmm. in which we think about environment as separate from human as separate yeah, yeah. and not only essentially european because it's very 16th 17th century uh, yeah like cartesian kind of Yeah, yeah where the yeah. Where the humanity has has the upper hand over the nature and you can conquest it mm-hmm. uh, but you and then you then you come to this part of the world or you you know you begin to learn from experiences of the community and especially indigenous people who for 
thousands of fear being uh, being uh, looted uh, and and have faced massive extraction and you see these movements that had these languages so in some sense i feel rights to nature especially rights to river in india if it has to develop or um, or become a language for actually advocating rivers will have to mm-hmm. will have to accommodate for uh, massive community participation so as long as that doesn't happen you will not have this becoming a movement and without a movement in a country right. like india which is so massive where one river comes from one part of the himalaya yeah. and goes all the way down to bangladesh through five state which has over 500 million population it's it's not possible for you to have um have rights it effectively would mean nothing so i've been based in india for past 5 months since mm-hmm. mid december and i've been working in upper himalayan area uh, in the state of uttarakhand and my research so far my conversation with civil society members expert who sit in dam committees people who are from riverine community those who have lost life and have had family members who've lost life um have been very informative in a way that nobody has one definition of river and it tells it makes such a scathing commentary on when we think of river in general you know when we say rights to river so there's not one meaning and i'm not saying that this this sort of is a disavowal to the idea of riverine i think it only thickens the plot so what they're saying is effectively should be read into law and not law being read into them right i think uh, and i think in case of india it's it's definitely definitely interesting that um, the court did not see it uh, useful to you know call community member people who are most affected by floods and disaster and and live by the river to actually inform what it means to be advocating for rights of river on the register of law so as an anthropologist it's always very very interesting for me how do law function uh, in isolation to to how the social life of law sort of unfolds or does it function <laughs> as well <laughs> yeah no that's super interesting I, I I guess you couldn't expect the the sort of current political elite to implement these rights by themselves because unlike the the indigenous people they don't have this relationship with the rivers or nature so you just couldn't possibly expect them to to do it without this popular pressure I guess Yeah yeah I mean it's it's very interesting I grew up in a very small town in in one of the states in India where I'm based right now it's in Bihar uh and my house is just 2 minutes away from a river that comes from Kathmandu in Nepal oh really and and um and my state is a state that 70% uh of its area flooded every year um so on an average we see a lot of flood uh and i grew up uh, my house has been hit by flood twice um so my experiences of flood i mean you know it's it seems like <laughs> when i'm doing a postdoc my whole life has come in full circle because i didn't realize that i'm working on river um uh, and i've had experiences with river because i grew literally next to a river for 16 years of my life and i didn't address it and it's only when i began to speak with people who are supposedly expert within climate change discourse and have very fantastic ideas and uh, thoughts about river and but it found no resonance with what i must have experienced of the river by being 
by the side of the bank. Um, so a lot of what I do is also self-informed norm by my own experiences. Yeah. But trying to extrapolate that uh, and then you know sort of place it with other experiences as a constellation of of, um, of ideas. Uh, and you see often this whole discourse. So it's very interesting that you know the entire management system around water in general, rivers in particular, is organized around a group of people who are experts. So you always have experts mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to water and river who will tell you one or two things about river. And these are people who, who are generally qualified engineers uh, in most cases. Uh, if not, then experts who have done um, something to do with economics or stats. So they have a very uh, normative, very, um, very ordered understanding of what it means to be speaking of river. They define it, um, it's as if an explained formula uh, mm-hmm. that would be understood by everyone. So the idea that river is also a form of embodied knowledge is completely removed from that register. Uh, and and therefore, oftentimes when you would, you were to go to a climate change panel, you would realize a lot of people who would speak of a uh, very useful idea. This is not to say, it's not to discern the amount of great work that people are doing. But just to say this, there is a knowledge politics at place when it comes to um, when it comes to environment in general, where certain kind of experts are recognized are more responsible in responding to the plight of climate change and reverse in general than those who have embodied form of knowledge. So indigenous people in in particular, but riverine community in general. Um, would not be someone that the state would look up to uh, in order to inform their legal uh, mechanism because they're not deemed as expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have experiences that could possibly be an anecdote, a reference or an index, a footnote at best, but not mm-hmm. the body of content. And, and that's Oof. for me fundamentally uh, my politics, you know, to mainstream mm, stories uh, as part of content and not as footnote and index uh, mm-hmm. and it's something yeah i mean it's it's something that really is is very fascinating and, and you know i was yeah i mean we can talk about it more but just recently i was looking at this one canal that was built in india in 19th century mid 19th century by a british engineer who came from england to India and he built what is what was then and I think is still Asia's largest canal. So it goes for a stretch of about hundred or some kilometer, or maybe more. I'm wrong. I'm not good with figures right now. But just reading his sort of three volumes of record that he report that he prepared in order to justify the construction of uh, that canal, and you look at his report uh, apart from hydrological explanation for construction and and you know. Uh, the massive financialization of water into so, some sort of commodity. You also have references to how he sort of mitigated uh, little incident he had with people who lived by the river by granting some portion of river to them, by allowing them to build staircase to access the river. Uh, but mm. but in, in his own understanding, you can see that he's looking at river from a vantage point, which is, which is effectively European, and but I'm not like this. Is not just a generalist commentary, but mm-hmm. because he was trained in a certain tradition, he's looking at river as a commodity that has 
capacity to be financialized and for me that was very very interesting mm-hmm. uh, and it's not much has been written about him i've just written something and it's under review that will be under review for a million year <laughs> as with yeah. any academic I but think yeah, um, I'm just saying that yeah. knowledge is at the heart of environment. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's it's really interesting because this really relates to our previous episode that we just did with um with uh, Joanna Allen uh who works on Sahrawi uh, like Western Sahara communities and their perception of wind. Um it's kind of the the two kind of similar things where she had found out that uh wind is is key is a crucial part of saharawi culture because it's you know it informs their um how they find themselves uh and their directions in the sahara desert by the winds it's how they know uh you know where to find oases or, or when to plant certain things where and the it's really interesting things like that yeah. yeah and it's really interesting that their perception of the wind was so completely different from the uh wind energy company's perception of wind as like a resource uh like something to harness something to utilize and capitalize on versus uh the saharawi kind of idea through poetry and things that she had analyzed of wind as literally an entity like as as something embodied like you say something that mm. is part of the culture and it that feels very antithetical to this idea of harnessing or using um in the same way they would feel strange i think to use someone or to harness someone i guess um so i find i find these kind of topics really interesting because they they really challenge the entire kind of world view that our our uh, ideas are are based on the policies that we we make um i was wondering if the the figure that you had cited earlier i'm sorry i don't remember his name it wasn't bersamunda it was another one or was it Birsamunda the person who said my village my law or something yeah my village my room yeah it was Birsamunda yeah. yeah okay would you say that uh Birsamunda um was identifying with kind of anarchist uh ideas and concepts like because it, it kind of sounds a little bit like that the kind of idea of autonomy and and uh and self-identification Yeah, I mean yeah, I think saying anarchist would be for me uh, a bit of a stretch because he had a very short life so he lived for 25 years and we're oh, wow. also talking okay. about an indigenous person in a forested area in 19th century India where in general this country is colonized and then you have a population of indigenous people who are internally colonized right so mm. so we're talking about about people who are stripped away of their voices it's not the it's not the absence of their voice but it's the it's the uh it's the removal of their speech you know so if, i i'm not in a i'm not in a position to um make a commentary on that but what i can say from my research um um and what i've argued partly in the book is that uh, what he was trying to argue for was um seeking some kind of sovereignty but not sovereignty as a modern idea where you sort mm-hmm. of move away and form your own union but he was seeking sovereignty in the sense he was seeking non-interference yeah, um yeah. because he could put gods uh that they were they were institution in play and even in this case uh you know for for instance i thought um and i've argued a lot in my book uh that 
there was something so insidious about uh, knowledge politics at play that um, it it almost is is visceral, you know. So you could see uh, that somebody who has been able to mobilize the community, been able to petition or you know trying to petition the court, etc. Why is that community constantly being failed? Uh, and then you realize that a certain kind of knowledge formation or political mobilization is re- recognized as as um, as as sort of uh, valid forms against other. Uh, and then we're talking about indigenous people where oral culture sort of led the history and not the written. So we're also looking at conflict of knowledge based on forms of um, written records that's been produced and everyone everything yeah. most things used were used against them right um so i mean in that sense besamunda was very effectively clear and um um and had a very clear political vision in his mind which he pursued um for his lifetime but it was a very short time that he lived yeah um, and i think in that sense i think the best that you can say is that he fought for his for what he thought was important to save his own people and whether or not if it's anarchist or anti-colonial mm-hmm. um, I, i think is is something that we can have broader discussion because it's framed as an anti-colonial uh, his memory is recognized and venerated now as an anti-colonial but it's also slightly problematic because it feeds into a very strange kind of nationalism that's at upsurge in this country right now yeah so i would not i would not give a free hand to um ideas as such i think uh, bisamunda was a very uh, politically aware uh, uh, adivasi person who knew his community more than anyone would have done mm-hmm. and he fought for it uh, at the cost that he could and with means that he had um and we can we can have a discussion larger discussion on whether or not that sort of Uh, align with anti-colonial. Okay, we'll be. We'll just wait one sec. I was scared for a second when I mentioned Joanna Allen because I thought. I'd- I fucked up her name. I was like, <laughs> too many names in my head. I was like, yeah. wait, was her name Joanna Allen? Yeah, yeah, it was. Okay. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Hello? Yeah, you oh. seem to have paused. Oh, yeah. Hello. There you go. You're back. You're back. <laughs> You're back. All right. Awesome. So, yeah, uh, you were just saying about the larger conversation. But, yeah, I, I, um, I think that... well since since there was a technical issue we i also kind of wanted to just move on from from this topic because it is really interesting but i think you were right in saying that there is a kind of limitation to that kind of categorizing as well um but um i was really interested in the new zealand um topic uh because the example of new zealand because for me obviously colombia and india are you know arguably or non a uh, part of the global south whereas new zealand is very obviously seen and uh, behaves as a global north country i really wonder how this idea which seems to have gathered a bit more from a more marginalized context of indigenous politics fared in a global north country 
Um, so can you maybe like kind of run us through the the what happened exactly with this law on riverine rights and and how it succeeded or failed in some regards? Right. So you asking in New Zealand context, right? Yes. Yeah. So New so Zealand has had, um, yeah. So New Zealand has had a uh, several years of uh, protest uh, and movement by indigenous people to have the recognition of their rights to forest and water. Uh, so the riverine, I mean, the rights to river was a very, um, it's it was a very wonderful movement. I mean, moment in one sense within the constitution. Um, a parliament history in New Zealand, but on the other sense, it was also brought to notice by a very sustained and organized form of mobilization by indigenous people. So, so some of the ideas that were brought into the act came from the community. So, uh, for instance, uh, a number of uh, indigenous people were part of the committee uh, and and participated actively. Um, in forging dialogue with uh, members uh, in the parliament. Um, and even though, I mean, there, there are demands that were not fulfilled and issues that were not addressed properly uh, within the law, I think the discussion on whether or not um, New Zealand could be used as an example, definitely yes, because it does uh, gives us an outline of how we can possibly have a discussion on, on rights to river without excluding the community from, from within the discussion. So even concepts, some of the core concepts that are used within the law were actually borrowed from, um, and I'm not in a place to make an explicit commentary on New Zealand because that's not a case study that I've done. But from my own reading about the case, I, I can definitely say that it has a very... Uh, it has the most detail uh, right now existing in any country. The idea of rights to nature has the most mm -hmm. explicit form. It's almost um, a point of reference for any country. So, wow. for instance, in India, uh, the judgment came just after New Zealand, right? So on 20th March 2017, when the Uttarakhand High Court passed the judgment. Um, and the judgment in uh, the act in New Zealand had just come in the same year. So you clearly, and then and then the judgment in India had like massive extract excerpts from New Zealand act within the judgment. So it definitely did influence a lot of, uh, uh, you know, judicial move across the world and law in general. Uh, so it remains a very detailed form of act that could be used effectively for advocating for, for rights of rights of river yeah i i just like to sort of get a, a bit more idea of the, the context here like just i guess generally characterizing the sort of government's lack of reception of the actual local people who live and have directly experienced you know the the rivers or the forests would, would you would you be able to characterize that as maybe like like um sort of a bureaucratic skepticism saying like oh well you know they do not have the qualifications or expertise or do you think this is sort of more of a kind of broader prejudice against any popular partic participation sort of a, a suspicion of the populace if mm. if that's a if you if you even can characterize it yeah very interesting question no i mean there's several things at play at once so, of mm -hmm. course, one is this complete mistrust 
um, against the community not being able to handle uh, yeah. something like a river, and of course that's premised on the re on the reasoning that the community does not have sufficient merit, you know, so to speak, uh, to know what it means to be doing rights of river or or river taking care of river in general. But there's also politics of resource at play, right? So rivers are not just um, sites of common. Uh, it's also sites of, you know, for instance, in India, it's also site of hydroelectric power, right? So, so to 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 grant river, what does it mean? I mean, I, it's a question that I've been asking. That mm-hmm. what does it mean to grant rights to river when r- rivers are effectively dammed? Um, so, in one Himalayan state, such as Uttarakhand. Where you have massive dam and you have gone inch uh, every inch of tail end of of, of the state now uh, to where even the glaciers are sort of uh, you know located just below that you have a massive dam generating and it's not the it's not a it's not simply about um, to say that it's not important to have dams you may have dams because it's some form of and now i mean that's also been disputed whether it's complete green transition or not uh, but i'm just saying that as a country that's fairly new and independent it's important for us to have certain kind of growth in order to grow um, because of colonial past but at the same time it cost at a, it comes at a cost that's completely um, uh, it cannot be paid for it becomes extremely um, resource-led management uh, instead of uh, you know allowing community to participate and say. And you've had India has had a you know plethora of movement around anti-dam protests from early early as early as 1960s and 70s and and it goes on and on. So so I mean there are two things at play. One is of course this mistrust and not having to think of community as sort of beholders of knowledge and therefore removing ownership from their purview and granting it to expert deciding on their behalf in, in committees and um, etc and other is of course uh, river themselves being sites of resource um, and therefore uh, and you know there's several more issues at place also i mean in india rivers are also transboundary um, and they're also frontier states so you also mm-hmm. have bought conflict with china involved so it's it's not it's not simply um, as if rivers stand on its own and i think that what that's what make india's case far more complicated than new zealand where you have one sort of river going around in the country uh, and and the discussion is around that in india it sort of comes from glacier and and you know forest fed etc and goes through five state into bay of bengal through Bangladesh, so it beca- it makes it extremely um, transboundary rivers become also matter of sovereignty and control. Hmm. So more and more complications just add to the texture of definition. But I think it should not like allow anyone to say that the community will not know what yeah, it means yeah. to take care of river. And I think in India's case, not so much in New Zealand. I think they could do much better, but there's that's always a hope. But in India, it's absolutely absent. Uh, so community participation is meager, close mm-hmm. to nothing. Um, so they've appointed state officials who are secretary general of the state uh, as a guardian of, of the river, who may may not have even ever lived in an area <laughs> to river and grew up in maybe uh, a big city and, 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 and therefore 
therefore may not know what it means to talk about river and i think that diversity of opinion you know voices and it's not just sometimes uh, and largely i see there's also a trend to simplify diversity as form of um compliance issue you know so you go on saying oh you are this and that and you check boxes and then you move forward so and it does not diversity is not taken as a radical reformulation of what exists as a form of knowledge that excludes other so you know you're not reordering the system you're simply saying oh we'll have one or more people from one or other community to speak for rest of them and then we can go on with what we want in place right and that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh representation at best but also um but also not um uh diversity i mean diversification of voices as such and it's not to say that there's simply diversity of voices there's diversity of voices in which certain voices are privileged privileged over others is a problem i mean mm. diversity of voices in any case will exist we're not going to think alike there's always going to be a conflict of opinion but whose opinions are privileged over other becomes a matter of grave conflict especially within environmental space um in general where within europe it works in different forms of whiteness whereas in india it works in different forms of caste you know so environmental movement and ideas are not simple manifestation of the natural world right it's also mm-hmm. these these natural world spaces are fraught with social values um mm-hmm. so how i uh as in as a male um uh, caste hindu uh is impl- as an upper caste hindu i am implicated um in 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 an environmental politics that's very sophisticated and does not um uh, perhaps address questions of social justice which mm-hmm. is also at the heart of climate change right so i mean yeah i'm just saying that it's it's several layers of um a sort of enmeshing of issues together that makes it uh, both challenging but i think it's also interesting because it makes us think through ideas that we take for granted you know mm-hmm. yeah and there's a concept that i thought was really interesting at the um in that that specific paper as well um which was the idea that if rivers have rights they and are recognized as legitimate uh, persons let's say under law then they have duties as well and i was wondering how do you <laughs> qualify the duty of a river and you know can a river be punished for for not having fulfilling this duty in the same way that for example a citizen of a country has duties as well that they can be punished uh, legally for yeah it's very interesting because this happened in india just after so for just for clarity in india the rights to river case has been was put on stay in the supreme court so it was a federal court mm. decision came about in 2017 march and in july or june the supreme court of india uh, put a stay on the case which means the judgment which effectively means the means the judgment is no more functional it's under it's under consideration and it's been 5 years since it's been addressed in the supreme court so it's not effective is what i'm saying it's been put mm-hmm. on stay now somebody had gone to cook case saying right i mean court saying just after the decision had come that you know my property was flooded and led to an erosion and it was cut off by the flooding so i want to sue the river what does it mean to sue <laughs> now i mean in my understanding uh, we also tend to because we're so um 
you know guided by the modern idea of uh, um you know division where we tend to think as if uh, if rights have uh, if if rivers have rights they will have obligation mm-hmm. so we tend to and therefore we tend to think of flooding as an unnatural right yeah and but it is a natural part of the cycle exactly so uh, what it made me also think about is that this effectively means that we will have to sort of make our boundaries of definitions very porous so when we are saying obligation in context of let's say rights of nature Mm-hmm. it should very well account for some of the natural processes for instance flooding for instance you know and the uncertainties around that as well because sometimes it is also a natural cycle that we just don't understand that a river has a massive flood one year randomly or seemingly randomly when really maybe that's part of a larger cycle over a much larger time period So, yeah. yeah, I guess we'd have to have a proper guessed, understanding of that too. Yeah, yeah, and it, but it's 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 a very useful intellectual exercise because it makes you think and challenge uh, legal categories with which you imagine environmental landscape. Uh, so it allows you to ask yourself what you take for granted or as fixed entity, right? Uh, and it makes law very porous. Um, uh, and 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 yeah, I mean, and especially, I mean. what does it mean to talk about you know um climate changing climatic condition uh if it if if you know rivers were to, to be granted as rights then that what does it mean to be talking about let's say anthropogenic rivers which are highly toxic contains highly toxic waste uh, you know discharge i mean the idea will definitely destabilize some of what we take for granted uh within uh, the discussions in law uh, and environment in general Mm-hmm. Now there's uh, another article of yours that we were looking at um just quickly get my notes here which was on the um on yeah on subaltern memory um I think well we, we have to start slowly to 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 close up the episode but um I think that uh maybe if we can just talk for a little bit about this that would be a nice kind of way to potentially to to close it um what is the subaltern <laughs> and what does it entail to look at subaltern memory yeah so this article very interestingly is part of it's one of the chapters from my phd um which is now a whole manuscript uh and should be out by the end of this year um and i i i i wrote this chapter in thinking about statue politics in india especially associated with bisamunda uh and i wanted to argue first of all subaltern is an idea that a lot of post colonial uh, theorists have lifted from gramsci's idea of subaltern from his prison notebook uh which basically talks about uh, a member of society or a group uh, that's around that who are on the um what he called margins of history for whom there's no one to speak for um and then what they do is they they collectively uh, mobilize together to state their claims um in the in the politics and so a lot of post colonial theorists have lifted the idea and for instance gayatri spivak chakravarti has written this uh, very provocative article called can the subaltern speak where she hmm. she talks about this character who uh, takes her life uh, and and it's a detailed essay which is also read variously but i wanted to basically use subaltern memory as a trope to contest 
hegemonic forms of remembering, uh, which is done through construction of statue of a certain kind. Uh, so I, I placed subaltern memory as a form of militancy uh, or, or sort of militant memory against the um, official forms of uh, memorialization. Uh, so, for instance, in this chapter, I've in this article, I've shown how um, certain statues are built across the state in Dhakan and what political purpose had it served so far and what it then means to have a statue constructed by indigenous people based on their own memory that may may not prefigure uh, a certain kind of uh, you know bodily representation in a built environment form in a statue uh, mm -hmm. and therefore i call that sort of trope of memory which is not uh, very norm affirming that we tend to see in public mass memorialization process that happen in general so you see statue etc so I try to basically argue in this article that if, if we were to accommodate or um, allow the diversity of memory that especially comes from um, the reserve of knowledge that community has based on certain kind of struggle, the memory memorialization process may not look like same because then it will, you know, it will address and it's, it's at a much larger grade details that I'm completely skimming through. But in details, it talks about how uh, you have uh, elites, uh, political elites in state, representing indigenous people, representing their icon, appropriating their history, and then standardizing that into a norm affirming aesthetic value in a public, as yeah. opposed to indigenous people who are using trope of memory as a form of militancy against any kind of uh, standardization, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's within their own confines of uh, memorialization, it includes some of the core um, grievances, political grievances that they have about land rights, uh, rights to you know, access to forests, etc. So I basically, in my book in general, try to sort of upset um, this trend of memorialization. And, and I talk at length about how um, we, we don't have structures of listening uh, in place to understand what indigenous people are speaking. We barely know words and letters. We don't yet know how much knowledge they hold. Um, and in, in, in this case, what's been happening is this extra, you know, extraction of their knowledge and then representation of it taking in some other form. Uh, but that's, that's, that's a much larger discussion I have in the book mm -hmm. in general. Yeah. And I guess with the example of Bursa Munda's statue, so that 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 statue was uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It was it was built by state officials, um, and so I I guess you could you could brand that as a form of co-opting this 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 figure of the Adivasi, um, yeah. And like so so how 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 is how did that co-opting sort of take place? Did they sort of present him in a particular way that's perhaps deceptive? Like yeah so how, yeah how did they do that? So one is, of course, this sort of aesthetic um, misrepresentation, right? So if you would look at the article I talk, I interview this uh, elected representative uh, who had these great ideas about how he wants to preserve the history of indigenous people and has no idea of how might the body of an indigenous person look. Would it look like same as upper caste Hindu warrior who fought against, you know, certain kind of community? No, it does not. Uh, so, so one, I try to show that there is a standard template 
for aesthetic representation of any canon and in that he tends to sort of force his image he try to force mm-hmm. the image of birsa munda into the standard template of a warrior because that might fit the popular representation of an icon right as yeah. opposed to the memory and idea and figure of actual indigenous person so that's one and second is that it does not include for um you know often we think of indigenous people only in rebellion we don't think of them not resisting so what does it mean to have an indigenous person not resisting does it mean that they do not have any ordinary life at all no that's not true and probably not true in in the way that their ordinary forms of lives are also part of political culture that we don't want to account for because it will not fit our aesthetic built environment concerns that we have so i try to show that one he lacks uh, the experiential register so he does not have an experience of what it means to think of an indigenous icon but b i also try to show that uh, often with any memo- most memorialization process um the community participation uh is is so limited that it makes the process almost become alien to the community uh so what goes into making of an icon is basically a standardized form format of aesthetic concern that's mm-hmm. you know largely based on 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 some 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 reference outside outside the society but th- there are there are interesting i mean you know at book i talk at great length about what does it reflect about uh, sort of cosmological uh, conflict that now sort of uh, that exists within the world view that we inhabit it's not merely him trying to think about bismunda but it's his world view it's his own experience of having lived in a certain kind of society that privileged certain kind of norm that leads to these uh, you know aesthetic concerns so so yeah i mean i, I mean in the book it, it sets a much greater detail but i think in this article i just have shown uh, that you have this one elected representative who is an elite uh, and mm-hmm. has a certain vision of an icon as opposed to uh, indigenous people who have a very different uh, and probably vision that's in contra- contradiction with uh, with what he's represented uh, yeah and the, that that's why i find the 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 paper so fascinating because i never i never thought about how statues could have such a um sort of presence and influence on these movements and self conceptions and discourses and i i guess just like at least my like kind of final question is um about the power of these statues we've talked about how it can on the one hand if it's a, it's a it's a status quo figure and they're trying to legitimize that that's a very like conventional like way statues are used by those in power and then we have the um the example of Bursa Munda how it's used to sort of distort um a popular figure um in, in a way that somehow reinforces the status quo um do you know of any cases where a statue has genuinely been in control by of uh, by the populace and so it can it can it can really be uh, a source of power genuinely for the populace in a way that's undistorted and and does not feed back into the status quo i i don't imagine they're they're very common uh yeah yeah i mean towards the end of the book i mean i learned a lot from reading variously uh, so a lot of literature that comes out from aboriginal uh, peoples in australia you know so a lot of literature 
that comes out of indigenous people in australia has actually uh, has helped me think about this so for instance i talk about how a uh, certain kind of indigenous protest movement in india for instance i have a chapter on a movement uh, in which um, indigenous adivasis have basically put up burial stones uh, at the entry mm-hmm. of their village uh, by an inscribed certain part of indian constitution that guarantees them rights to uh, safeguard their interest of land um, and i try to show how um a on the epistemic level on the idea level of idea um this this kind of mobilization of burial stone into form of a protest in itself for me is uh, far more imaginative than any kind of aesthetic built in marabit that you would think of right uh, so and so i i sort of try to show that in relation to how uh some kind of efforts are being made by indigenous people in australia where what they do and what they call is called counter memorial where instead of making a memorial they make a counter memorial where they and there are different creative outlets that they've used but one of the ways is that you invite people to engage with the content of the memorial instead of them trying to look at it as a passive form mm. of object yeah um they make um what i have called in uh in my book as dialogical memorials so it's sort of forming mm. space for dialogue and 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 not having memorials as sort of passive representation in forms of object and i think uh, adivasis in india have creatively shown that and it's been violently erased uh if not completely removed uh and we know why mm. because it destabilizing it completely destabilizes norm forming ideas about what it looks like to have representation uh and i think m- we will see more of this as as the time and, and things progress as more and more community comes to sort of attain a certain uh you know representation within the politics they will mobilize these ideas more clearly but i i think i think in general at length uh statues are very powerful reminder of mm-hmm. or holding torch to the power uh even if they are if they if they follow certain kind of you know basic standardized aesthetic even then they remain very destabilizing yeah. for india i mean ambedkar who is the who is the was a massive figure here and had um uh, you know formed our gave so much of value to our constitution and the icon for uh, dalit community the exuntouchables in india who sits at the bottom end of a violent system called caste uh, so his mere presence in statue destabilizes uh, very norm affirming brahmanical uh, upper caste values mm. uh, and therefore i think therefore i think it's a it's it's a two and um uh, you know it, it's it's so, so, sort of has value at one end and then could very well be uh, a site of political appropriation yeah. but it remains use, i mean useful in any case uh, but i think Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry um just would you say that the anti memorial uh, idea that you had would do you, would you say that that kind of resembles a bit of a museum kind of concept of of historizing and and, and conceptualizing uh, an idea of of an event or a person rather than just putting a kind of uh, um empty some more empty i guess uh thing because it just when you were explaining it, it i could really picture in my head um my visit for example to the hiroshima museum which mm. was like one of the most honestly one of the most 
powerful uh, museums or even just experiences I've had in my life was was at that museum. It, it felt like, and it felt like a dialogue. It felt like a conversation was being had with this, mem- which was a memorial, really. It was a memorial more than a museum, but it felt like a museum in the sense that it was presenting you with stories and asking you to reflect on these stories. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I mean, I, I don't know what to say, but I, I mean, for me, museums are about events in history. Uh, but if you do counter memorials, it's also very act in nature. So mm. you, you participate in that moment of building a relationship with an object, right? Whereas in move, uh, whereas museums as an enclave spaces, um, you know, for me, and it could have different format, for instance, but are more or less made for purposes of eventful memory. Whereas counter memorials are also very act based. Uh, counter, sorry, I said anti before. Yeah. Yeah. So counter memorials are also very uh, dialogical, therefore, has uh, acquires a life of its own in the act of its making sense to the to okay. to the public uh, and this is not to say that all museums are similar some museums are more or less interactive mm-hmm. but in in my study especially within within india and, and looking in relation to i thought what indigenous people did uh, uh, adivasis did in india was absolutely fantastic um, on and you know spot on politics what you say uh, you know, and 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 for me, as someone who was doing PhD with one, I can you know one sort of person from late nineteenth century. Um, I think it was very self-affirming that uh, his values lived through memories of people. In that moment when the protest began to use this stone slab, uh, I had a PhD mm-hmm. moment where I thought, no, yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my hypothesis uh, about. Uh, memory as a structuring affect uh, exists on ground. It does structure people's life world. It does structure people's political consciousness. Because for many people, they thought that they've gone complete uh, nuts. That they're using burial stone and saying, you know, you can't enter my area. This is a this is a country that has everyone has a, all I you know uh, freedom to go anywhere. But what they were basically saying was about the Simhavaraj, which is my village, my rule. Um, yes. Which is not to say that uh, you're not welcome, but you're welcome in so far as you respect, you respect my yeah, yeah. my independence, my yeah. terms. But so it was, it was quite a chest thumping PhD moment. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I continue to feel very inspired uh, by how a twenty five mere twenty five years of life as an Adivasi in in a completely violent system where you you know there's a system in place to make you feel subjugated you still rise above and fight for your community and i think that's all inspiring for me yeah well, on the on that inspiring note i think we're, we're gonna start closing it um because we we try to keep the i know we could go on for hours and hours like genuinely we still <laughs> we we haven't even exhausted half of our questions that we actually wrote no. down <laughs> let alone the ones that pop up in our heads as we speak um but yeah, um, I just wanted to say a big thank you to you for also for your kind of engaged research work because I think mm-hmm. it's so important to have. Um, I, I think I, I've seen it more and more this like importance of the subjectivity of researchers and and their like engagement 
with the politics of what they're researching. I think you're really ex exemplifying this uh, with your own research of like tr really trying to, especially ethnography, it's, it's such a difficult uh, kind of qualitative uh, side of things to where, where, you know, you have a lot of responsibility as a researcher in coming and all that. So yeah, thank you for, for uh, taking such a stance and, and for doing researches. Uh, honestly, it's super fascinating. Thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything that you'd like to, you know, plug, shout out, kind of the, uh, maybe where people can reach you if they have further questions or what books that you think they should get to, your own, <laughs> etc. No, I mean, first of all, thank you, Skander and JP. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And I love the format uh, yeah. of, of, of this mm -hmm. talk. I've never had this sort of uh, little less uptight yeah. talk. <laughs> Academic talks are lengthy and, and boring and confined. Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 very much present on Twitter mm -hmm. uh, and and very ha happy to be in touch with anyone who would like to be in touch. But I also am writing several longer pieces that's going to come out on idea of environmental grief, loss, and pain. Uh, uh, if you're interested, do look out for my book that's going to come out from Cambridge. Uh, later this year, um, which is going to be on Bersamunda that spoke here. Mm -hmm. Which but, will yeah. be called Bersamunda uh, Memory and Politics in India, right? We've not decided the uh, title of okay. the book, but it's going to be called as Political Life of Memory, Bersamunda and Indigenous Politics in India. Okay, okay, right. And um, and also for for people listening, the Twitter uh, at is uh, Ranjana underscore Rahul, but we'll plug yeah. that into the description as well. So you should have a clip clickable link to that as well. Um, but yeah, again, thank you so much for yeah. coming on the show. Yeah. You're welcome thank you, anytime. Thank you, Jamie and Sample. Thank Good you luck so with the book. <laughs> <laughs> you too. All right. Take care. <laughs>